Hello everyone, welcome to the Melting Pot podcast. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is as a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance, scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions along the way. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a high-quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at dominicmonkhouse.com. Today I'm talking with Morin Surf. Morin is in New York. I am in Salisbury. There's a little bit of interference. We couldn't get the video to work. He couldn't get on a network that was good enough to do to do the video link, so he dialed in instead. Uh, there's a little bit of interference there, but I think the content beats perhaps the quality of the audio today. Morin's a neuroscientist and also teaches on an MBA program, teaches MBA students the science of influence. We talk about how children can be taught to read the S&P 500 and do better, way better than chance. We talk about how socialising is better than an addiction to an instant high and gives a sense of optimism about the future and social media and addiction more generally. And at the end, Moran shares how he's on potentially the cusp of changing his career trajectory completely again. He's basically at the moment in his third career. And I challenge anyone of you to guess what he did for the first two careers in his life. Fantastic conversation. You probably can't listen to this one, speed it up. Moran talks quickly enough already. Enjoy. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Thank you. My name is Moran Surf. I'm a professor of neuroscience and business. I teach at the Kellogg School of Management in Chicago. I teach both MBA students business and neuroscientists about the brain. And the point is I try to merge the two fields, how you can use the brain to leverage decisions better. Okay. And what do you teach the MBA students? So the MBA students, I teach them kind of, there's two versions of what I teach them. I mean, you can call it basically how to change behavior or how marketing works or how people decide and think, but we try to frame it a little bit more in the context of uh, psychology. So it's still business. They study marketing. They study uh, how persuasion works. They study how make people make decisions, but the context is psychology. Instead of just saying, you know, there's a kind of a four P's and three C's and all the kind of acronyms that they teach you. If you go to business school, I take the approach of saying, let's understand how people think, what goes in through their mind when they have to choose between two toothpaste on the shelf. And as we analyze daily, we can help businesses nudge people into choosing things differently. And we can actually help ourselves know what governs our thinking so we can choose things that help us have a better life. And so what are some of the, are there some sort of rules of thumb or heuristics that, that work in the choosing toothpaste realm? So I think that one thing that is really key to step one is to understand that most times when you make a choice, 
if someone asks you to explain the choice, why you made the choice you made, you have access to only very little out of the entirety of the things that govern this choice. So you might say, you know, I chose the Colgate because I like the minty taste or the price, or I like the package and so on. But the reality is that there are many, many things that went through your mind that actually nudged you and navigated your choice that you have no access to. And we can now look at your brain and understand those things. We can see that maybe if you were coming to the same place two hours later, a little bit more hungry, you would do something else. And you would still think that this was the choice and you would still give the same answer, but the reality is you have no full access to your brain. The main lesson is that asking customers to explain things isn't futile, but it's incomplete. And, yeah. and that's a big kind of change because most companies rely on focus groups and on customers' satisfaction surveys and so on to make decisions. And now we know that people are incomplete, but their brains is not. If you look at their brain, you can get the full answer. Two things spring to mind. One is I was listening to a podcast about not preparing for this, but weirdly, it talks about people who've had the connections between the two hemispheres of their brain disconnected. And it said the left-hand side of the brain has the storytelling part in it. These people couldn't explain why they did things. It was just absolutely incredible that something that their left eye saw that was processed in their right brain because their left-hand side... And you know, I, I say to people all the time, look, we're, we're emotional creatures. We make an emotional decision and then we rationalize it afterwards. And some people push back and say, no, 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 I'm, I'm very rational. I, that's, I chose the car because blah, blah, blah. And you, there's just so much evidence that that's just, not how, that's just not how we make a decision. As you say, we, can't, we don't actually know why we made the decision. Exactly right. And I think the main lesson here is that once people accept that their answers are incomplete, that their brain is a storytelling machine, then they become a little less committed to the narrative. And they say, okay, I'm going to actually look at what happened, try to understand myself. And I think this is the first step towards understanding yourself better and for companies towards understanding their clients better. And so when you say, when we look at the brain, we can see the whole picture. So I make a buying decision. I don't understand it. What is it that you're doing? What do you do when you look at the brain? I'll give you an example of, of the type of experiments that we do that show us how vulnerable people are and how they often make decisions. And I'll tell you how we actually kind of figure out what actually happens there by looking at their brain. So the classical experiments we do that is often allowing us to com convince people of how vulnerable their brain is, is one where we bring you, Dominic, and we say, Dominic, we're going to show you two cards with two, say, pictures of people. They say two women. And we ask you to choose who you think you find more attractive, the one on the left or the one on the right. So you don't know them, they're just strangers, two pictures of two women, and you kind of point out to the one on the left and you say, fantastic, take the card that you selected, hold it in your hand, and explain to me in one or two sentences why you picked this woman. So you might say, well, looking at her, I think that I wanted her, this one because I liked her smile. We say, fantastic, let's choose another pair and have you choose which one you find more attractive. So we picked Again, two new cards, you make a choice, you take the choice you made and you explain it and you do it for about one hour. So for one hour, you keep making decisions and explain them. And what we do is we have the person who, who is actually handing you the card every now and then trick you by handing you the card they didn't choose. So if you chose the card on the left, he would give you the card on the right. And what we see is that people rarely notice <laughs> that the card they received isn't the one that they selected. That's, that's the first thing. But the more interesting thing is that they then go on and explain to us why this was their choice. So they chose A, I give them B, they take B and they say, I chose B because I really like her haircut. 
And this just shows us that in the course of like five seconds, I can replace the choices and you will never suspect that I did it and you will come up with an answer. So if you went to the toothpaste shelf and you chose Colgate, but somehow I sneak it to your basket and I replace the Colgate with Crest, if it's one choice out of many, if it's not really an important choice in your life, you probably will just not notice that I misplaced things and that I just gave you the thing you didn't choose. And if I stopped you on the way out and I say, you know, I'm from Procter & Gamble and I have a focus group and I want to ask you why you made this choice, you're going to come up with an answer. And at no point will you say, I have no idea why I did what I did. I just kind of believe that this is my choice and you're going to commit to it. And this is just kind of a way to show to people how vulnerable our brains are to those changes, as long as they're not, not big choices. It's not going to work if I try to replace your wife <laughs> or replace your, you know, your children. But on small things that happen all the time, we actually are very vulnerable. And the reality is that most of life is those small choices that we kind of make without even paying attention to. And the reason I'm telling you all of that is that what we did in this experiment is we actually scanned the brains of the subjects in the study, and we try to look at their brain while they make those choices. What we see effectively is the part of your brain that makes a choice. It's a different part than the part of your brain that actually reads the choice later and explains it. And what we can do is first show you that there are two independent parts. But the part that kind of comes up and answers doesn't know anything about the part that actually made the choice. There are just two different parts that are totally it could be different brains. It could be you trying to explain why I made a choice. That, that's as far as they are from each other. And the other thing is that the part that makes the choices actually sits back deep in your brain in an area that you don't really have uh, full access to. So you don't really know all the little parameters that went into you making a choice. You just kind of make the choice and you're aware of a small fraction of all the things that made the choice happen. Is the stuff that you're aware of, are you conscious of that or is it only when you're asked to make the choice that you're conscious of, of? Is it not even that you access that? You just Does your brain just make something up? So it's based on some you know, residues of content, but it is mostly made up. I think that life is made of a lot of choices that have kind of history. So for instance, you might really not like the salmon and you might really like the steak. So if I give you the salmon, if you chose the steak, you will notice right away because you really don't like that. But uh, if it's kind of a smaller thing that you do many times, you really are likely to miss that. I think the example that uh, could be easy to understand are the people at the airport who uh, look at your suitcase in this kind of x-ray machines and have to decide if it goes on goes on or if they want to scan it further because they think there's something there. Those guys are basically sitting there and their job is to look for bombs and, and things that are malicious. Now, the reality is that most of those people will never in their life see a bomb. There are very few bombs out there, but they sit there for days and days and they look at suitcases and they have to make choices about them. So if we don't add some level of attention to their work, they're going to miss the one bomb because they see a bomb one in, I don't know, 10 million suitcases that they see. And if all your job would, is to just say yes, no, yes, no, and the reality is that most of them are no, it's very likely that your attention will fail even in the time that you have to actually say yes. This is why one of the things that the security authorities do is they make them uh, stop you even if you have water or bigger hard drive. And they basically add more things that will make them more active. Otherwise, if you only had to look for a bomb and the chances of a bomb appearing is one in 10 million, let's say, you would probably will just miss even the bomb because it's just something that happens so rarely. And the example here relates to choices, which is if you 
put a person in front of small choices that are all microscopic and not important, and they just have to make one after the other, it's very likely that you can actually replace one or two of them and no one's going to notice. And that's most of life. And that is kind of what we're trying to show. But most of life are those little choices. In your work, then, where do you then put this to commercial use? There are different uh, groups. Sometimes we work with the customers, sometimes we work with the companies. And it's almost like the different angle on the same thing. But if we're a company, uh, what you're trying to do is you're trying to help them understand their customers and what actually will be aligned with their interests. So for example, we would take, say, audiences of uh, movies and we would put devices on their heads that actually measure their uh, brain activity when they watch a movie. And we look at their brain moment to moment, trying to understand at what point is your brain choosing, so to speak, to like the movie? At what point do you become engaged? At what point do you become excited? At what point do you get bored? And we give the company, the content creator, a profile of the content based on people's brain. We tell you, okay, look, minute number 17 was a moment that a lot of people fell asleep mind-wise. They weren't sleeping, but they were kind of losing you. They weren't as excited about what's going on in this particular second. And we tell people something like, if you just uh, change this particular scene and make it a little bit longer or shorter, you will get more young people who would be more engaged or you would kind of benefit from people remembering more what's happening. And if the joke in minute number 12 is set in minute number six, it's more likely that jokes are going to work because people are going to actually pay more attention to the setup in minute number six. So we kind of try to help them really control the content by teaching them how the brain of people works. So that's with content creators. With other companies, we try to basically have them have much pricing. So for instance, uh, we know that uh, when you go to buy a tomato, let's say, the price could be, let's say, $2, 2.1, 2.2, 2.3. It could be, and at some point, there's a number by which you say that's too much. And ideally, if you're the seller, you want to get just below this number. So if you know that people are going to not buy tomato if it's like $3.99, but they would buy it at $3.98, you want to know that the $3.99 is the cutoff. The only way to do it right now is to present to you the tomato and see if you buy or not. And then, you know, you increase the price, decrease the price, and you kind of see what happens market-wise. What we can do is we can take a person's brain, show them the tomato, and actually start increasing the price just in a picture in front of them. So all they see is the tomato and the price, and we just increase the price. And you see that at some point, part of the brain lights up. That indicates to me that that new price is actually seen as a different uh, element for them. So not, right now, we kind of reach their threshold. So instead of having them come to the supermarket, and expense that we just show them a gradient of prices going up. And at some point we see that their brain actually changed the perception of the tomato as something from say cheap to expensive. And we say, okay, this is the price for this particular person. If we do it with 10 people, we can now learn something about tomatoes average price that people like. That's in the, the world of a consumer stuff. If you want to go big, you can price a Ferrari and see exactly what's the price range that one person, one specific client would want to pay for the Ferrari. And if it's a very expensive thing, even looking at this one client's brain is enough because that's the one client that's going to actually buy. So it's not an average, it's like this one individual. So that's another example. I can go on if, I, if you want. No, no, I was, I was just thinking, I was just thinking about the, the content. Does it make average content a bit better than average or does it help people create great stuff? So this is a really good question, and it's kind of a, a spiral thing. So here's, the, here's the, the difficulty in this thing. So imagine that right now Netflix looks at all the videos that you viewed, and they say, okay, this is your preference. 
And then they start offering you more things that align your preference and you like seeing those things and, and you kind of converge into a setup. If they never intentionally give you one thing and they say, look, Dominic, just watch this movie that's totally outside of your sphere of movies and maybe enhance or expand your repertoire, you might always kind of spiral in the same world. And in that sense, I think that most companies right now are trying to cater to our previous needs and they give us the same thing that we liked before more of that people they, you know people like you bought this that's basically the the summary right they always kind of try to see what you like before they give you more of that and in that sense we are kind of losing the effect of novelty which might work like if i gave you a french film from 1920 that otherwise would never be under your radar you might expand your repertoire and discover more things but right now we're giving you the same things now the joke among neuroscientists is that there's also a chance as we do sometimes, that there's a bug in the code. That you know, that Amazon has a bug and it keeps telling you, uh, people like you bought this and you keep buying things because people like you, and only in 20 years we're gonna discover that there was a bug and actually people like you did not buy this thing, but you <laughs> believed that this is the case and you just kept buying things that you thought about like you. And it's kind of begs the question, do you trust that people like you are what you wanna be like or not? Yes, I find that fascinating when people who read this book also bought these books and they are very similar. That's one of the things that people say is different between getting your news from Facebook who serve you the same news from people like you. Whereas if you sat down and read a newspaper, you might have a, it might have a particular bent or a particular bias, but at least there would be a sort of a global view of the news and maybe some sport and maybe some arts, particularly if you sat down and read it from cover to cover. There's that sort of, are you spiraling or are you sort of picking? Because, you know, if you pick early, there's tons of stuff you might never know you could have liked. Here is but a recommendation that I give my students every now and then. It's small, but it actually makes a huge difference. Every couple of months, erase your cookies and your browsing history. It will expose you to a new world. <laughs> yes. Or, or be one of those people who doesn't save any of that. Turn all that stuff off forever. When we spoke uh, recently, you were telling me that some great stories that, that gave me hope for humanity, the sort of the antidote to sort of dystopian future. And, and one of the stories I've been potentially mistelling is around small children doing stock picks. Perhaps you could tell the listeners the full story. So first of all, I should say generally, there are a number of experiments where uh, kids beat adults by orders of magnitude. And we always like to kind of do those in the lab to remind people and you know, calibrate their perspective of themselves as like, great. And there are many of those. I mean, a simple one before we go to the kind of cool one that we have is the one called the Stoop test, which you can all do online. You can go online and just type Stoop. It's S-T-R-O-O-P test. And it's a very basic test that many psychology uh, students have done in the kind of psychology 101, where you're shown words on the screen and the words are the names of colors. So the word black, the word blue, the word yellow, but you're asked not to read the word, but actually to name the color that the word is written in, the font color. And in the beginning, it's very easy. The word black is colored black, so it's very easy. The word yellow is colored yellow, it's very easy. But in the second kind of iteration, the word black is colored in red, let's say, and you have to say red rather than word black. And it takes time. 
It's like you really feel the, the difficulty in your brain of kind of removing the semantic aspect and focusing on the color. But if you bring a three-year-old kid, they beat you instantly because they simply call <laughs> But they can, they can tell you, they can tell the colors. Oh, that is brilliant. And it's always fun to kind of, you know, bring my MBA students to do it. And then you bring a three-year-old kid and the three-year-old kid just spits the green, green yellow, black, <laughs> blue instantly and, and lose. And that's kind of a reminder to me that as we become more complex and educated, we also load our brain with lots of contents that actually interferes with each other. So the fact that you can process words and colors actually overloads your brain and your brain has to do some parsing to get to it. That's just a simple example. Now we can go to the main example that, that we mentioned, which is, it turns out that if you look at the brain as a kind of pie chart, we have access to only a small part of this pie chart. Like maybe 15% of the brain are things that we have full control over and the remaining 85% are things that still operate, but we have no control over them. For instance, you're breathing right now and it's not like you're telling your heart right now uh, pump or expand or contract and move blood or tell your lungs to inflate or deflate. Like those things are happening. Your brain is controlling them, but you have no access to them. Like they're not under your control. Your brain is doing that without you having any control over that. And that's a lot of the things that the brain does are those things. And why am I saying that? Because part of those things is the ability to actually integrate complex information into a decision. For example, if I ask you right now, what's the, if it's cold or hot, or kind of to, to tell me about the temperature, you will have a feeling of the temperature. You can say it's a 50 degrees Fahrenheit, let's say. But to do that, it's not like you're saying, okay, let's read what I feel in my thumb and put that as one data point and then read what I feel in my left finger and index finger and ring finger, integrate that with my torso. Together, I'm going to aggregate average and I say, okay, it's 50 degrees. No, it just feels like 50 degrees. But your brain has to actually take the reading of all of those cells all over the body and do some complex computation to give it the numbers. So the brain does that. It's just that you don't have access to all the process. Why is it important? Because now we can actually start attaching some computations to those parts of the body that do those readings and actually make your brain solve problems with them. And here's what I mean by that. In one of the studies that goes to look at that, there's a vest that a subject is wearing on her chest and her back. It's kind of tied to her upper torso. And this vest has on it about a couple of hundreds of sensors or pressure sensors, motors and, and movement sensors that actually change the pressure and the heat on her body. And when the subject comes to the experiment, she's given a little tablet in her hand and she's told, we're going to now turn on the vest and you're going to feel something. The motors are going to start working. So you feel pressure in your left back, let's say, and a little bit of a tickle on your uh, right belly. And after those kind of are active for a few seconds, we're going to turn the vest off and we're going to ask you to make a decision based on this feeling. And what happens is that she makes this kind of, she feels something in her body and then two arrows appear on the tablet, one pointing left, one pointing right. And she is asked to make a choice. Is the feeling that she just had corresponds to choosing left or choosing right? And she says, I have no clue. I have no idea. And we say, okay, fantastic. If you don't know, just guess. She says, okay, I'm guessing left. And then there's a feedback that tells her if she was correct or incorrect. Let's say in the first trial, she's told correct. You just gained $1. Let's try another. And again, we turn the vest on. She feels something in her body. This time, maybe it's a pressure on her back shoulder and the, on the neck. And again, a little temperature change on her left torso. And 
Again, two arrows appear on the screen in front of her, and she has to make a choice, and maybe this time she chooses right, and she gets a feedback that says she was incorrect, and she lost a dollar, and she does that repeatedly for the next one hour. So for one hour, she just keeps feeling things and making choices. What we see in this experiment is that after a few rounds, subjects start getting better. As in, in the beginning, they just make total guesses, so they win and they lose kind of equal amount of times, but after a few rounds, they start getting a sense of what goes on. So they say, every time I feel uh, something in my left chest, I should go right with the arrows. And every time I feel something in my belly, I should go left. And they kind of start being more accurate. They do better than chance and they actually earn money. And they improve so much so that it becomes something that they can kind of feel. They say, I feel that if I should go left and right. Now, unbeknownst to them, the pattern they feel in their body isn't just random pattern. It's actually the S&P 500 turned into a feeling in their body. And the choices they make, the left and right choices, aren't just random, they're buying and selling stocks. So effectively, we took a complex table of stocks, turned it into a feeling in their body, and made them choose if you should buy or sell for this particular kind of pattern. And what we see is that some people actually do better than chance, and they do so relatively fast. So they, they, within a few minutes, they already start to kind of get some sense of what's going on, and all of them improve. And if you do that for an hour, they get far above chance. So this actually effectively means that those people learned to feel the market. They feel S&P 500 and they know what to do with that. And when we kind of started looking at that, we started to do all kinds of experiments that try to understand what's going on. How many hours can you do that? It's kind of boring. So at some point it becomes like you stop learning. How much time should you feel the pressure on your body before you should make a choice? How much should the reward be to actually make sure that you remain excited? Does it work the same way if we do it with the NASDAQ or the S&P 500? Does it matter if each stock goes to each place in the body or if you can shuffle the location, but it works the same? So a lot of questions became interesting, but one of the interesting things that we learned is that in a way, because what happens here is that we take a complex pattern and turn it into a feeling, we actually exercise different parts of your body. The part of the brain that actually tells you what the temperature is, that does it automatically without you knowing what's going on is in a way the part that kind of listens to tactile experiences and turn them into a decision is the part that we engage. And that's a part that normally isn't involved in making decisions about stocks. So you move it from the 15% cognitive part to the 85% feeling part. I'm kind of naming them so it will be easy. The other part, and in this part, people do remarkably good job and primarily people that have less information. So the more, again, knowledgeable you are, the more we try to kind of override the choices with some meaning. And according to what we see is that people that do really great job are, again, kids. <laughs> or, you know, people that know very little, people that kind of trust their gut, so to speak. People that, that are not trying to constantly find the complex kind of answer to what goes on and just kind of go with intuition. Those are the ones that do best. And best means not just bidding than chance. Some of them actually do better than actually regular stock traders. So the sky seems to be the limit here. And now we're trying to see exactly what is the limit and what are the parameters of the learning. Have you invested any of your own money in a seven-year-old wearing a hepatic vest yet? No, I think that unfortunately, if you go to, we try to kind of look into ways to, you know, commoditize that. And the reality is that the entire world of trading right now relies not just on making the right choices, but also on accountability, meaning you have to have someone to blame. <laughs>
And if the person who makes choices is a kid not knowing what they do and can't really explain why they made the choices they make, and if they explain it's very kind of vague and arbitrary, most trading companies don't like that because they say, well, if we lose our money, we need to have someone who's accountable for that. So it's not going to be commercial yet. And what's your, what's your view so that, you know, lots of trading businesses have built algorithms and, and quite often when we have a, a particularly a dive in the stock market, you know, they could turn the computers off because they're worried that the algorithms have all gone into mass sell mode. Are people better at, at this, do you think, than the algorithms? Are they, because they, you know, the algorithms, you, you've tried to work out all of the things that could go wrong and you're building the parameters, whereas you've written the algorithm to the point of view that I suppose that you know what you're trying to do. Whereas when you're feeling in the vest, you, you just don't know what it is. You're just sensing the movement. There's a kind of two levels of answer. One level is that when a trader in, say, New York Stock Exchange makes a choice, he thinks that he knows what he's doing. Uh, but he doesn't actually have a clue. Right? <laughs> he has experience and he has feelings. And, but a lot of things that go into the choice are things he can't articulate. So, for instance, he learned that uh, days where the, I don't know, temperature is uh, colder on days where stocks usually are more volatile. I'm making up something. Mm-hmm. And he would never tell you that. Like he, would not, he is not aware of that. But somehow he knows that when on the way to work he's uh, delayed because the subway is slow, because like, all of those things somehow feed into the choice. And at the end of the day, he does feel that today he should be more conservative in his investments. But he would not say it's because there was a delay on the subway. He would think that he's making up a choice that's rational about something else. So that's, that's the human part. The other aspect of that is that even in the world of algo trading, where you really rely on computers, many times we have no idea what's going on there. So when the algorithm's making choices, we can try our best to dive deep into the algorithm and really see what drove the choice. But many times it's just too complex and we don't know. I think the classical case was something that happened, I think, in 2012 in the US stock exchange. I think it was May something, so not long ago, like uh, time-wise, that one day at like 2.20 in the middle of the day, the stocks started dropping. And I think in the course of 10 minutes, the US lost $1.2 trillion, which is pretty much the national debt of China. So they just doubled the debt by 15 minutes of like bad trading. And everyone just stood there and looked at the market falling something that never happened before and no one knew what to do. Like no one even knew why, what's going on. Like why is it happening? I thought there was like a big announcement. It just suddenly things started to fall. And fortunately for those traders, just before they kind of stopped everything and tried to figure out what's going on, it all climbed back up. So in the course of 15 minutes, the US lost $1.2 trillion and gained them back. And to this day, I think that there's investigations trying to figure out what's going on. They seem to think it was a glitch in some code in one computer that tried to sell and everyone kind of followed this computer and said, if Goldman Sachs is selling, we should sell as well. And everyone starts selling, but with no real reason, which just comes to show that any day now you can see a collapse of like the, you know, biggest kind of markets without us knowing why. It's because there are so many algorithms and they're so complex that we don't really know how to interpret what they do at the end of the day. Uh-huh. One of the other things we, we spoke about before we started recording was the, some happy news that you've got or some, some research that, that makes, certainly makes me feel happy if I think about my small children and social media, you know, that people's addiction and addiction to social media based on some, some animal experiments. And you were telling me that the world isn't potentially quite as, as bad as it seems. 
you're talking to an optimist. So I think that you and the audience should know. I, I really see the world getting better on most accounts. There's a lot of evidence just if we use numerics, then we see that. I think if you look at the newspaper, it feels like the world's falling apart every day. But if you look at any number of measures of progress, number of wars, uh, people who are under the poverty line, number of people who are not getting food daily, on any measure you can imagine, things are looking better. Like the world just becomes a better place. I think that all those kind of evidence that we have for progress with you know, kids becoming smarter, faster, kids doing remarkable things in terms of learning, the ability to create super smart content that's tailored to you, all of those things are great. I think that as a scientist, every time I finish a talk, I'm kind of playing the, the devil advocate to that by saying, guys, you remember that science doesn't tell you if it's good or bad, it's people who have to decide. And in that sense, you should always kind of be cautious because anything can be exploited badly. But the reality is for the most part, the world is getting better. And I think that that is a good reminder that scientists should kind of give us every now and then. There's a fantastic book by Steven Pinker called Enlightenment Now, where he basically just looks at all the evidence and just over and over in different spheres just says, look, it's better than it was, it's better than it was, it's better than it was. I think you're absolutely right. There's no... There are definitely some people throughout the last economic cycle, I guess, which is who, who feel as though the world hasn't got better for them. And as a result, you end up with Brexit and Donald Trump. And some people don't feel the world is getting better, definitely. Um, and maybe fed by their newspapers or the getting their news from social media. But it's you, you were telling me that there's that the study that um, people often show about the addiction to social media, that the guy who did that then did another study which was much more heartening. Yeah, so this one is one that I love. It talks about social media, it talks about addiction, and it talks about social life. And I think that it combines all those three in many ways. It's based on a study that, I'm forgetting the date, but it was dozens of years ago, I think in the 80s first. And it was a study that essentially showed us the danger of addiction. And this was a study done on rats, the rats were put in a cage and they had a little needle placed inside their brain in a part of the brain known as the VTA, the ventral tegmental area, the part of the brain that lights up when uh, you feel pleasure. That's the part that kind of lights up when you feel uh, orgasm. That's the part that lights up when you feel elated. Like this is the part that tells you life is great, euphoria. And so those rats were sitting in the cage and they had two levers. One lever would give them a zap to the VTA, which would mean a zap of pleasure momentarily. And the other liver gave them access to food. And essentially in every trial, they can choose one or the other. Either they get pleasure or they get food. And many of the rats in this experiment died of starvation because they kept choosing the immediate kind of joy at the expense of food to the point that they actually died because of that. And this study, let's say from 30 years ago, even though I'm not sure if it's 30 or 20 or 25, became the study that people cited again and again to show the danger of addiction and drugs. Say, if you give someone drugs, they're going to get so addicted to it that they will kill themselves or they would hurt their loved ones or they would do awful things to themselves and to others just to get one more dose. And this was true for ages. But the same guy, a few years ago, ran a new version of the study that kind of reverses the result and becomes, to me, a very optimistic view on life. 
where he added a third option. So now the rat in the cage has three options. It has one option that gives it a zap to the VTA, which means zap of pleasure, another option which offers the rat food, and a third option, which is a theme park for rats just outside. So a room full of other rats playing around, climbing ladders, and they're running in on wheels, doing fun stuff. And what happened was that rats started by zapping themselves with the pleasure centers for a while, but at some point they kind of got bored from that and they just moved to play with other rats. And this became a hallmark of the idea that if you give a person social option, the social option would beat anything, including immediate gratification. It's better than anything else. And this was an experiment that then kind of was turned into real paradigm shifts in many ways in how it countries deal with drugs and how people deal with their kids. They say, if you give your kids only the option to kind of go on Facebook or Snapchat or Instagram, they will choose that. And it's very satisfying and it's kind of more satisfying than maybe dinner or maybe, uh, I don't know, homework or maybe other things that are immediate. But if you give them the option to interact with other kids and play, they usually will prefer that to solitude with one device. That's a fantastic example for a lot of kind of ways to make kids interact. In Portugal, it's a country that I just visited, they had a serious drug addiction problem, as in I can't remember the number, but it was in the order of kind of double digits of people who were addicted to drugs. And the government decided instead of allocating all the money to a war on drugs, which is what they do in most countries, including the US and England, they said that we're going to take all this money and we're going to invest it in something else, in not rehab, but in making sure that a person who is coming out of jail because of drug usage gets integrated in society and basically gets access to people. So I think what they did is they offered to pay your employer your salary. So if, you're, if an employer hires you, your salary is going to actually come out from your employer, but from the government. And this is a way to get you to work and interact with people and actually have a way to get back to society. And this proved remarkable in making the problems of drugs decrease in Portugal. And I, th I think that's kind of an uh, implementation of the experiment with the rest to show that there is a way to beat addiction to momentary and immediate gratification, and that is social interactions. Yeah, so I think, and I think that's certainly as a, that, that's why when you told me that story as a, as a father of two small children, I thought, there we go, that's excellent. We just need to make sure that they go out and play rather than spend time as you say, in solitude with a device. They would definitely pick that unless you push them out the door. Brilliant. Moran, if, if you had to go back in time knowing what you know now, is there a time or a place where you would, you would go back to and you'd think, oh, I wish I knew that then? So generally, the, there's a lot of studies right now on personality that show kind of when do you develop your character and they boil down to the fact that half of who you are personality-wise is in your genes it's something that's there when you're born. You're given your extroversion versus introversion, like your openness, your agreeableness. A lot of those things are in your genes. That's 50%. And the remaining 50% is a coming half from your parents or your peer group that raises you and half from your peer group that you spend time with your friends. And the ages by which you're pretty much fixed are age 17. So between the ages of 0 to 17, you're fixed entirely and the ages 12 to 17 are the ones where you basically become who you are. 
personality-wise. Every afterwards, it's really, really hard to change who you are. And if you ask people, when did they read the book that influenced them the most? When did they watch the movie, the song, the conversation, the ideas? A lot of those things end up happening around the ages 12 to 17. That's kind of when we are formed. So I would definitely go back to those ages, 17, I would choose. And I would tell myself, the one advice that I was scared of throughout my life and now I know was very good for me, to change entirely what I do every 10 years. This was the biggest kind of thing that I think I was scared every time doing. And every time I did it, things worked out and they worked out for the better and I'm happy with the choice. But it always is really, really scary when you're kind of successful as say a business person. And there's nothing wrong there, like everything works. To say, okay, I'm just living so I can do something totally different with my life, starting over with the experience I have, but a totally different field, totally different environment, it feels counterintuitive. Everything we study and everything we learn tells us that uh, it's gonna be scary and frightening and we tend not to do that. And if I were to give myself advice, I would say, don't be afraid, do that. Change every 10 years. Uh-huh. So how long have you been doing what you're doing? How long have you got left before your next cycle? 2020. So I, I'm asking myself, like, what's next? And I tell like, right now, it's probably the best time to be an academic. I love neuroscience. I love my job and everything. And I'm really, really struggling with the idea that I know that if I remain true to what I did twice before, 10 years ago and 20 years ago, that should be the time to really start what? something else. And what were, the, what were the other two big shifts? I'm an academic for now a number of years, but before that, I was a computer hacker. So I had a company <laughs> and uh, I was in the business world. I was in the security world, totally different things. I didn't think that academia is going to be in any way in my life. I had a bachelor's degree, but it seemed like a thing you do. It wasn't something that I thought. And definitely, I didn't think that neuroscience is what I'm going to choose. It was almost arbitrary. And this is one change. And before that, I spent 12 years in the art school. So I was destined to be a ballet dancer. Uh, <laughs> So when I started for age six to 18, a change that was really, really kind of out of nowhere. Ballet dancer, computer hacker, neuroscientist. That's completely random. I'm sure it's not really. I'm sure deep in, deep in your subconscious, there were some decisions that got made that you didn't understand. But right, okay, well, I'll, uh, we'll stay in touch and I'll find out where you randomly jump to in the next, um, in the next little while. Um, what books do you, maybe from the time you were 12 to 17 or maybe later, that have significantly influenced you or that you've read recently or you think people should just pick up and read because they were fantastic? I have one uh, book series that I read indeed when I, between the ages of 15 to 17, that not only I think they're fantastic, I also go back to them every now and then to kind of recalibrate. I'll tell you what it is in a second. I'll just tell you that many scientists, if you ask them about their work, they would refer to a movie or a book that they read that kind of influenced them, like Star Trek and Star Wars. And a lot of science fiction movies actually inspire a lot of scientists to do their work. There's a kind of a funny quote that I like in graffiti that I, that's outside my lab that says, the difference between science fiction and science is timing. <laughs> And I think that's pretty much true. Like a lot of things that I saw when I was a kid on science fiction shows are now things that we use in my lab day to day. Like recording dreams or manipulating thoughts or uh, incepting ideas into people's mind and so on. So the book series is called Foundation. It's Isaac Asimov's uh, science fiction fantastic books that I think still are not entirely turned into reality, 
but in the days of like psychological targeting and the ability to actually figure out who you are based on your uh, digital footprint and predict what you're going to like, what you're going to have and so on, these books kind of pave uh, an interesting, actually optimistic road to what can happen if we just know a lot about people and can predict their future. Lovely series. Very good. And any more recent or business books or neuroscience for dummies or? I'm going to be very, very not self-promoting, but promoting my academic mentor. His name is Dan Ariely. He is not only a fantastic researcher, he's also a fantastic author. Every book he writes is a masterpiece. He has many, many books about behavioral economics and how people make decisions. And, but my favorite is a book about dishonesty where he looks at how people can all end up making immoral and dishonest decisions if they're given the right circumstances. So of all his books, I don't know if it's the one that kind of comes up first if you look, look him up, but to me, that's the one that I like the most. The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. Ah, fantastic. Right, fantastic. Brilliant. Well, look, thank you, uh, Warren, thank you very much indeed for giving me your time today. Enjoy your time in New York. I'll see you soon. Pleasure. All this information and more can be found at dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find show notes, additional reading and links related to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of the Melting Pot newsletter. The simplest thing to do is to sign up to my subjectively, not crap, once a week newsletter, where I'll update you on what I've been up to, the most interesting articles I've read, and all things relating to scaling up, high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. Social, you can find me on Twitter at Dom Monkhouse and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse. LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me and share your questions and comments. Thanks for listening. <laughs>